I played in just about every All-American game that was uh, right after my senior year. And then that spring, I played in Chicago pre-draft, and that's where all the decision makers come. And I guess I had a pretty good camp because they were projecting me initially as a mid-second round pick. My agent uh, was called, and they said they wanted me at the draft. I remember him saying, well, we don't want Roy embarrassed. If he's going to be there, we want to make sure he's going to be a first-round pick. And the gentleman who my agent was talking to said, just have him at the draft. <laughs> so, we kind of knew I was going to be in the first round. It's just a matter of where I was going. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 81. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm happy to welcome Rutgers University Hall of Famer and 12-year NBA veteran Roy Hinson to the show. We cover his whole career in basketball on and off the court. Thank you to great friend of the show and former guest, Peter Vesey, episode 8 who helped me connect with Roy. I really appreciate your help and continued friendship, Peter. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share another great podcast review. You can add yours by visiting inallairness.com slash review. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, are at inallairness.com slash 81. Now, on to the show. My guest today starred at Rutgers University and ranks second all-time in blocked shots. He was named an Honourable Mention All-American in 1983, and he played eight NBA seasons. Four times, he finished top 10 in blocks per game. Roy Hinson, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Uh, Now, just before we actually get into even your high school career, Roy, what are some of the earliest memories that you have of playing any particular organized sports? Well, I go back to probably my freshman year in high school. Most of the guys who I hung around with, if you will, uh, they actually played basketball growing up. Unfortunately, I didn't. I was a late bloomer. And so when they went out for the team, I followed suit and went out for the team as well. Not having any formal background in basketball, unfortunately, I didn't make the team. All right. Uh, I was 6'3", one of the tallest guys out there. Because of my skill level wasn't advanced, I could barely make a layup, and it showed. Wow. That's interesting. You attended Franklin Township High School in Somerset, New Jersey? Yes, I did. You alluded to it just a moment ago. You had a, a major growth spurt, I guess, in the years that followed. Um, one of the articles I read mentioned that you came up from the JV team in the early part of your junior year. So how was that transition, and, and what do you actually remember about those seasons with the Franklin Warriors? Well, I guess we go back to my sophomore year, if I will. Sure. I played a little bit JV and was very frustrated because I wanted to get better. So I remember going to Billy Cunningham, George McGinnis basketball camp at Trenton State College, which was near where I was born in Trenton, New Jersey. And I came back in my junior year. I actually started JV and played a little bit of varsity. Maybe eight games into the season, the center for, for the varsity team quit. 
And so that left an opening for me. So I immediately came up and played varsity the rest of the season. I ended up starting and never looked back after that. I ended up starting the rest of my junior year and obviously my senior year as well. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, as a senior, your Warriors went 25-2. and two, And from what I've read, you made it to the sectional championship game. And you were also named to the 1979 All-Area Team. And an article about that honour listed your senior stats as follows, uh, quote, almost 15 points and 15 rebounds per game whilst blocking an average of three or four shots, uh, end quote. Great stats there, particularly coming on as a late bloomer, as you were saying as well. Um, do you have a particular uh, memory from your high school days that stands out, Roy? Um, I have a couple. The first two points of my senior season, we were playing Princeton University. And because I was living in Princeton, it was special to me. And the first two points was a slam dunk for me, which really kind of started our season going. Nice. <laughs> you did some great dunks during your career as well. And in numerous articles that I read while I was researching for our chat, it always mentioned how thunderous your jams were. Yeah, I, I could get up there pretty good. I wasn't <laughs> one of those um, guys that fly through the air very creative, but if you gave me an inch, I was dunking on you. And what was one of the other memories that springs to mind? I had relatives in Somerville, New Jersey. Somerville was in the Mid-State Conference, the conference that we were in as well. So I wanted to do something special when we played Somerville. I think I made 18 points or 20 points that particular game. But other than the two free throws, everything was a dump. <laughs> <laughs> so you put on a show for those that were watching. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that sort of stuff. It's great that these sort of things are still in the uh, recesses of your mind uh, all these years on. Um, now, speaking of uh, the end of your high school career, in a, an April 79 uh, newspaper article, you'd narrowed down your tentative choice of possible colleges. Uh, there was Furman, Penn State, Rutgers, and Wagner College. Mm -hmm. What was the recruiting process like? Uh, I assume you had a lot of colleges that were wanting your signature. And what led to you finally deciding to sign with Rutgers? Well, um, I did have a lot of letters being sent to me, and there were coaches that came out and they saw me play. I was still really green. I was talking to my high school coach, Gerald Martin, who I'm still in touch with today. He said, you know what you do? Pick two small schools, two large schools, visit those, and make your decision. So he pretty much simplified it for me. So that's why I picked Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, and Wagner College in um, Staten Island, New York. Those are my two small schools and my two large schools, Rutgers University, where my sister was attending at the time, uh -huh. and Penn State, because they were recruiting me pretty heavily. Your freshman season with Rutgers, you averaged just under 10 points a game, and your uh, Scarlet Knights went 14 and 14. Yes. In what would be the team's final game of the season, you had a breakout performance, 22 points and 10 rebounds. Uh, looking back on that first season in college, what stood out the most to you, Roy? I got into a lot of foul trouble. <laughs> so I had to figure out how I could stay into the game. And, um, it was a learning curve, uh, definitely a faster-paced game than high school. Guys were stronger. Instead of playing against a good player maybe once every four or five games, you were playing against a good player just about every other game. It helped me get confidence as I went through that season. Obviously, in hindsight, you wish you would have played better. Um, we had some challenges on the team. Uh, they were a really good team. They had lost their 
main guy, James Bailey at the time, he had graduated. And so they were relying heavily on Daryl Strickland and Kelvin Troy, who were the senior classmen at the time. Moving on to your sophomore season, your productivity increased. Uh, you averaged about 12 points a game and, and over seven rebounds per game. And the team finished 16 and 14. So it was a couple of wins better than the season prior. Um, how did you feel going into that second season and the improved uh, production on court for yourself, Roy? Well, I, I was frustrated only because I thought, based on my last game of my freshman career, I thought I was going to do better in my sophomore. And, and so I was a little disappointed in my play. I don't feel that I grew enough as far as my skill level. So from that standpoint, it was, it was disappointing. A lot of teams played a zone, uh, unfortunately, so I didn't get a chance to develop. In our offense, all we did was we rolled me through the middle, and I just did a turnaround jump shot. And once teams started realizing that's what I was doing, they would actually just kind of compact the zone on me and allowed others to shoot from the outside. It was a bit of a struggle, but we weathered through it. Yeah, okay, that's interesting to note. Um, now, something which I was fascinated by when I was researching for our chat today, I had no idea that you were part of the 1981 World University Games that took place in Romania. Yes. Prior to your junior season, you headed over there and uh, ultimately won the gold medal. The team finished with 7-1 and one record. You had one loss to Canada, a two-point upset. Um, did you actually know that you were being considered for a spot on the team? And, and maybe what are you, just a few of your memories from that trip overseas? I had no idea. My college coach, I actually I was working that summer. School was out, and he had talked to me about there might be an opportunity to go overseas and play. Would you be interested? And, you know, I've never been to Europe before. I said, I'll jump at the chance. And so things just aligned just right, and I was selected for the team. We went up to Boston College for a week prior to going over to Europe for practice sessions. Great experience. Cherish those memories. And I cherish my gold medal to this day. Yeah, I can understand. Now, speaking of Boston College, uh, if I'm not mistaken, John Bagley, who would be a future teammate of yours in Cleveland when you get to the next level, mm -hmm. uh, he played for Boston College and the coach of that team also was the coach of Team USA for those World University Games. Yes, Tom Davis. He was a, um, a fundamentals coach. We wanted to do everything by the book. I never did so many bounce passes in my whole career. <laughs> Everything was a bounce pass. He wanted you to learn the basics. Yeah. It was a great experience working under a, another coach who had a different style than my coach, Tom Young. And a few other names on that roster for the listeners who I'm sure they'll recognize, uh, aside from John Bagley, of course, included Sidney Lowe, Fred Roberts, and Derek Smith. So certainly some great talent uh, scattered in amongst that team as well. Moving on to your junior season, uh, you advanced to the National Invitational Tournament, or the NIT. The team finished with a great record, 20 and 10, so progressively getting better and better, as did your stats pretty much every season as well with Rutgers. Um, what was it like to take part in a postseason tournament for the first time? It was great. Like you alluded to, we didn't make the uh, postseason my first two years, unfortunately, but um, it was a different season, new season, and we were pretty excited. Unfortunately... <laughs> We ran into Purdue. I mean, they were head and shoulders above us. I mean, they were bigger, stronger, faster, and it was just a just a really tough go. Mm. Yeah, I did see the box score of that game. It looked like it was a pretty brutal game for you guys. <laughs> but to be able to actually experience that, and then that helped, I guess, lead into what would come in your senior season, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but I'd like to also ask about a second trip that you took overseas. 
Uh, prior to your senior season, you were selected to play with an NIT all-star squad that toured Europe. And from what I've read, you went to places like uh, Italy, Switzerland, and France. Now, how was that experience? And what did you sort of make of the, the European basketball talent at that stage in 1982? I didn't know that much about uh, European basketball at the time, but um, what I did learn during that experience was, you know, they had basketball over there and it was really growing in interest and a lot of Americans were playing overseas. So given where I was in my career, that was the first time I really thought that, well, if I'm not good enough to make the NBA, there might be a possibility that I can play over in Europe. So I was excited to kind of learn a little bit more about this playing style and just get just exposure. Your senior season at Rutgers, you helped lead the team to a 23-8 and eight record, so the best of your four seasons there. Uh, you were named the 83 Atlantic 10 Co-Player of the Year, along with another guy from West Virginia named Greg Jones. Yes. And you were named Honorable Mention All-American, and your averages were fantastic. You had 16.6 points, 8.6 rebounds, and a staggering 4.6 blocks per game. So fantastic numbers. And on top of all this, the Scarlet Knights made it to the NCAA tournament, which was great. Uh, you defeated Southwest Louisiana in round one before coming up against Chris Mullins' St. John's in round two. Um, do you mind just sort of talking about that senior year, those achievements, and then making the NCAA tournament as well that capped off your college career? Well, that senior year was that was just a great, great experience for me. It was, basketball was really the focus at that point in my life. And I just wanted to play. I wanted to get better. I wanted to improve. I wanted to almost put the team on my shoulders and carry it as far as I could. Uh, we had some really great games. We lost a few along the way that I thought we should have won. Um, but it was just a fantastic ending to a, a career that I really was pretty proud of. Unfortunately, as you alluded to, we lost to St. John's in the NCAA tournament. I thought we had a good chance. Chris Mullen, he was a phenomenal player. Couldn't stop his jump shot. <laughs> he scored 24 points in that game. Yeah, you've got an incredible memory. Obviously, I had the um, advantage of looking through the box scores before we chatted today, but you've got it exactly right. Yeah. I just remember from the, the right key, he just was just filling it up. We had also practiced prior to that game, possibly playing a boxing one on Chris. Unfortunately, we never used it, but that might have been the difference. I don't know. Chris was so tough back then, it probably wouldn't have helped at all. He remained that way through a majority of his career, so um, not many people could stop him. He was a phenomenal talent. Who were some of the guys that you played against during your college years that you'd have future battles with in the NBA? Well, there's one that comes to mind as soon as you ask that question, Kevin McHale. All right. We played him my freshman year. We went up to Minnesota and played it in the Pillsbury Classic. We were 4-0 going into that Christmas tournament, and that's when I realized there was Rutgers University basketball, and then there was another level. And Kevin was at that level. I think Trent Tucker was on that team as well. And Randy Brewer. Randy Brewer, 7'2", 7'3". Kevin McHale, 6'11". Long. You had a 6'11 guy throwing into a 7'3 guy. And I was the tallest guy on the team. Uh, other Rudy Mann who saw limited action. But we had nothing for them. They ran out on the court and ran us off the court. You'd actually meet up with Mikhail in the uh, first season in the NBA when it came to the playoffs, but we'll get to that shortly. Mm -hmm. You ended up leaving Rutgers with averages of just a shade under 13 points a game and 7.2 rebounds a game. I will just quickly mention as well, you played with a future NBA veteran uh, whilst you were at Rutgers, uh, John Battle. Yes. 
plenty of names here. I mean, I'm overlooking some as we progress through the conversation here, but uh, it's great to sort of see names of guys that then would go on to the highest level and uh, be competitors with you as well. Yeah, one of the other guys who actually played with me, uh, Clarence Tillman, he didn't play in the NBA. He played a few years down in Venezuela, I believe. He was part of the West Philly Speed Boys in high school, and I think in his whole high school career, I think he only lost two games. Wow. That's how strong they were. He had Gene Banks on his team as well, who was another NBA legend. Yes, true. You went to uh, Duke and uh, onto the NBA. Let's move into the NBA portion of your career. Um, You were selected in the first round of the 1983 NBA draft. Um, You went pick number 20 overall to the Cleveland Cavaliers. In the lead up to the draft, were you working out with certain teams or or had you been told where you may go in the draft and perhaps even on the draft day itself, where were you and and how did you sort of find out when it all unfolded? Well, things were a little different than they are right now. These days, guys go around to different teams that they try out. Uh, Back then, we didn't do anything uh, such as that. At least I didn't. I played in just about every All-American game that was uh, right after my senior year. And then that spring, I played in Chicago pre-draft, and that's where all the decision makers come. And I guess I had a pretty good camp because they were projecting me initially as a mid-second round pick. My agent uh, was called, and they said they wanted me at the draft. I remember him saying, well, we don't want Roy embarrassed. If he's going to be there, we want to make sure he's going to be a first-round pick. And the gentleman who my agent was talking to said, just have him at the draft. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of knew I was going to be in the first round. It's just a matter of where I was going. When we got to 10, I was like hoping, because I think the 10th pick at that year was uh, Washington Bullets, which is now the Wizards, and they picked Jeff Malone. So I started getting a little nervous when they got past 10. And then when he got to Philadelphia, which was 17, I said, okay, I'm going home. <laughs> when Philadelphia picked Leo Routens from um, Syracuse, I really got nervous, <laughs> and I got picked by Cleveland. There you go. You've got a fantastic recall because I've just brought up the 83 NBA draft details on the fantastic website basketballreference.com and you've nailed the uh, the, the number of pick for Jeff Malone and also Leo Routens as well. So uh, fantastic recall there, Roy. Um, so that must have been very comforting to know that you were told to just turn up to the draft knowing that you would be picked as a first rounder. So when you heard your name called what sort of feelings were going through your mind and, and did you have some family and friends there with you or? No, no. I actually, the only person I had there, uh, my best friend, Ben Jackson was there and another friend of mine, Hank Strauss, he was there as well. I remember my name getting called and the next thing I know, I was on the stage. So it's almost like <laughs> I floated up there. <laughs> I was on such a high. Yeah. I was so happy. And I met the commissioner at the time it was just an unreal experience. I honestly couldn't say I worked from high school on because I didn't even have any inclination that I was going to make it to the NBA when I was in high school. But uh, I knew that there was a possibility as I got through my college career. And so I was pretty happy with my progress at that point. Understandably. like It's a, it's a meteoric rise from really only taking up the game in your high school years to then becoming a first-round draft pick uh, in 1983. So fantastic stuff. Um, Now, as a rookie with Cleveland, you played in 80 of 82 games, and you were a starter in 61 of those. Um, The Cavs went 28 and 54. You talked about the difference from high school to college. How significant was it when it went from college to the pros? Well, it was major. In college, you were playing against young men. In pros, you were playing against men. 
it was their job and that's how they supported their families and you knew it and the nba was pretty rough back then it's nothing like it is today it was pretty rough no spot on (laughs) (laughs) plenty of footage on youtube can back that up yes there was more scraps if you will back then um a lot of you know that's when they came out i think it was 77 they came out with the enforcers of the nba and some of those guys, when I got there, were still playing at the time. I can see why they were called the Enforcers, too. <laughs> Maurice Lucas springs to mind immediately. <laughs> yes, yes. I met Maurice when I was um, my senior year in high in senior in college, actually. All right, okay. Did he come and visit your team, or you just happened to run into him? He was uh, the lead person at a camp up in the Poconos, and I actually was able to work that camp. And that's when I got to meet him for the first time, and... Kind of got some words of advice from him. Really, he was a great person. In fact, I've met his sons, two of his sons, uh, Maurice and David, for the first time this past weekend in L.A. at All-Star Weekend. Oh, fantastic. There you go. It um, comes full circle. Um, now, into your second season, 33-year-old George Carl became the NBA's youngest coach when he replaced Tom Nasolke. Yes. And it was really a remarkable season for the franchise in that your team lost its opening nine games, and at one point early in the season you were 2-19. and 19, But then all of a sudden, steadied the ship, and we're actually in playoff contention. It all culminated with an emotional win over the New Jersey Nets on April the 9th, when Cleveland incredibly secured a playoff berth, and the crowd at uh, Richfield Coliseum were going off their head. Um, post-game, the players even carried George Carl around the court. Yeah. There's actually a radio call of this final quarter that's on YouTube, and I'll include that in the show notes to this episode. It's uh, quite remarkable just to hear the scenes of Joe Tate yes. calling it on Cavs Radio. All that said, can you reflect on the the addition of George Carl and then that fight to make the postseason and even that particular game where you guys clinched a playoff berth and uh, bedlam ensued? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, George Carl is very instrumental in my career. That summer, prior to George getting the job, I actually went to um, Charlottesville, Virginia, and worked with Tom Newell, okay. and just worked on just some fundamentals, um, learning how to square up to the basket, how to shoot properly. Some of the things I didn't learn in college or even in high school, I, I learned the techniques, footwork. And so when I got on the George toolage, some of that stuff really started to click. George was very supportive. He was his first coaching stint and he was great for my my career at that point we went into the first nine games and it was almost like a blur we were trying to figure ourselves out we were trying to figure out a new coaching style we just kind of stuck together we hung together and i never forget we were 2 and 19 as you mentioned and we were going to play the houston rockets and i remember looking at the houston papers and they were saying that the houston rockets are playing the cleveland cadavers oh <laughs> I mean, that's just like, that hurt. Yeah, I can understand. (laughs) That's something you never want to read, that sort of thing, is it? No, no, but um, we were not a good team at that point. But finally, World Be Free, he and George kind of clicked, if you will. Uh, Phil Hubbard, the forward on the team, he actually started having a great season. It was like the perfect storm. Everything came together towards the second half of the season. I remember us going on the West Coast, and I believe we played – either five or six games, but if we did play six games, we won five of those games. And the only loss we had was the last game to L.A., and we were just dead tired by that time. We had the confidence to keep going and keep playing. We were playing hard. Teams took us lightly at the time. 
we just played hard and fortunately it came together and we made the playoffs. I never forget the guys told me, if you're a winner in Cleveland, the fans will appreciate you. You never heard the Coliseum rock until you get everybody in there. You can hear the thunder of their footsteps and it was just a magical moment. I can only imagine. Um, and also that particular game where you clinched the playoff berth, I think you were relying on another team. It might have even been Atlanta to lose on that particular night, and they did, which also led to George Carl getting carried around the court. So um, some pretty incredible scenes there, and there was a great photo that I found whilst researching for the chat, which I did send you away, and it shows George getting carried around the court by uh, some of the players. I'm sure you're in amongst the throng of uh, guys that were uh, involved in that, but um, incredible finish to a, a regular season, which started off so terribly, to be honest. What I was going to ask was, um, and we alluded to it a little bit earlier, in the 1985 playoffs, you would match up against the would-be NBA finalists, the Boston Celtics. And I don't think a lot of people realize how close this series was. Um, You lost the series three games to one. However, the three losses were by a combined seven points, which is quite remarkable. You won game three at home. By seven points. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a fantastic memory, I must say. It's just great to know that you're all over this. You start in game one, which was at Boston, and we talked about uh, your links to Kevin McHale there uh, when you said back in college how great of a, a player he was. Um, in game one at Boston, you had 24 points top scoring for the Cavs, and you also grabbed 11 rebounds. Uh, Larry Bird casually dropped 40 points <laughs> in that game. Um, what were your memories of playing so well at Boston Garden and perhaps just that first-round series and just getting a taste of the playoff action in only your second season? Well, I tell you what, I was nervous. I had butterflies because this was for all the apples, if you will. I remember going into the garden and they said, you got to watch out for the leprechaun. (laughs) He will do something. And I think it was freezing outside and the locker room was steaming hot. (laughs) (laughs) Red hour back at work. (laughs) (laughs) The Boston garden at the time had a lot of dead spots and they said, be careful because they will actually steer you to the dead spots on the floor <laughs> and make you mess your dribble. Uh, it was a great um, series. That game that Larry Bird was out, he had an injury. I was saying, boy, if we could actually get some momentum, we might be able to take this series. And then Larry Bird said in the paper, enough's enough. And he came back, and that's when he um, we lost the last game. He was a phenomenal player. In fact, he's one of the few players that I have his poster in my office. That says a lot. Who are the other people you might have on your poster then? Um, actually, I have Michael Jordan as well. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Playing in the Eastern Conference, of course, you would have matched up against uh, Jordan on numerous occasions. I don't want to make it all about uh, Jordan and Bird and whatnot, but what are a couple of memories you may have from playing against the Bulls and, uh, and Jordan at that time? Michael and I went back to college days because he went to North Carolina, me going to Rockridge University. So we played against each other three years. I just remember him being a very tough competitor. North Carolina was a great team at the time. Mm. It seemed like he had a rocket in his shoe because he was one of the quickest players I've ever seen in my life. He would actually be dribbling down the court and almost turn on afterburners. And it was just amazing. I remember one time I was playing with the 76ers and we were playing um, the Bulls and I was sitting next to David Wingate and Michael came by us and just took off. Both of us were amazed how quick he was and how obviously he um, defied air because of uh, his leaping ability. 
and how he could hang in there. And I mean, he's just a phenomenal player. Arguably the greatest player of all time. He's definitely the greatest player I've ever seen play. He's from another time and place. He's uh, an amazing, amazing player. Um, in January of 1986, you scored a career-high 39 points at Houston. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. You were 11 of 15 from the field and then made 17 of 20 free throws. Akeem Olajuwon led the Rockets in that game with 21 points and they held on for a, a 116 to 109 win. 1986 was your best scoring season. You averaged just under 20 points a game and you played in all 82 contests. Um, do you have many recollections from that career night in Houston and, and just in general, the scoring ability uh, that you had uh, and how, how it developed in your early years in the NBA? The one memory I had from that game, obviously that was a tough game because they had the Twin Towers, Ralph Sampson and Kim Olajuwon. And I remember I got the ball on the wing and Ralph and Olajuwon was underneath the basket. And to show you how supportive George was of me, he just said, take him. <laughs> <laughs> I got drilled down and I actually split both of them and ended up dunking the ball over both of them. Oh, nice. You know, one of those memories you have that's kind of etched in your mind. It was a tough game. It was a hard-fought game. And just because they were, you know, the Twin Towers, they were tough to beat. That was just an incredible year. Almost 20 points a game. You played every game of the season. So to be able to average that night in, night out is a, a great effort. Um, have you ever seen that highlight you just talked about since? No. I wish I had that the tape of that game. But it, um, I'm sure I probably can talk to someone in NBA entertainment that might be able to pull it up for me. In February of 1986, at Dallas's Reunion Arena, you participated in the Slam Dunk Contest, and you were up against Dallas native Spud Webb, Dominique Wilkins, uh, his brother Gerald Wilkins, uh, Terrence Stansbury, who was a former guest and friend of the show, uh, episode 58, uh, Jerome Kersey, uh, Paul Pressey, and Terry Tyler. So looking back, um, there's a few names there that might surprise a couple of listeners. What memories do you have, Roy, of taking part in that particular contest? Obviously, I was honored to be asked to participate, but the one thing that I will always say about the way I used to dunk the ball was I was always a power dunker. Nothing fancy. If you gave me a step, I was going to dunk it on you. It was a great honor, great thrill to be there. But when I looked at some of the dunks that the guys were doing, more finesse, and that just wasn't my speed or style. (laughs) So it was fun. I was out in the first round, unfortunately, but it was a great experience. It was a great contest for a number of reasons. This was the one that Spud Webb uh, stole everybody's hearts and uh, took the victory over Dominique. When you were watching the rest of the contest from the sidelines there and being so close to the guys as they were dunking, particularly with someone as, as small, I guess, comparatively speaking, as Spud Webb, who was like 5'7", in front of his home crowd because he was born in Dallas. Yes. What do you recall of that atmosphere and, and as Spud continued to go from strength to strength in terms of those dunks that he was pulling out there? Well, I think the one thing I really gathered was Spud was the hometown favorite. And so some of the things that he was doing, even though he was a shorter guy doing it, if uh, a taller guy did the same dunks, probably would not have scored as well. And that's what we, we've seen over the years. When you have a taller guy doing basically the same dunks as a shorter guy, they just don't seem as fluid. You know, one of the dunks that I remember Spud doing was he bounced it off the floor and actually went up there and slammed it with two hands. Not necessarily uh, a finesse dunk, but for someone who's 5'7", probably about 165 pounds soaking wet, it was pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. 
right near the start of the contest, he walked to stand underneath the basket, I think just to show the massive contrast in terms of his height and then the height of the basket. Great theatre there all around. Now, it would be remiss of me not to mention World Be Free. You did briefly mention his name earlier. You were teammates for three seasons at Cleveland. Yes. He averaged almost 23 points a game during that span. What was it like to play with World and, and even just as a person, what was he like? Well, World and I got along great. World was World. <laughs> just named the World, so you knew he had a bit of an ego. <laughs> true, true. He wasn't like a Phil Hubbard, which Phil Hubbard kind of took us under our wings, the young guys. But he, he made us work. He, you know, he would say, you know, you can't take a day off in this league. And for me, who was a leaper, he used to say, you got to save your legs. You want to stay in this league a long time, you got to save your legs. So you can't try to dunk every ball. Sometimes you got to lay it in. Veterans tips he used to give us all the time, the young guys. But he was a phenomenal shooter. I remember some, some of the games, he would be falling down and he would make some incredible shots. And you ask yourself, how in the world can he even do what he can do but I mean he was a really great player very fortunate to play with him for those three seasons yeah you played with an eclectic mix of players over your career and uh, he's certainly one of those guys in mid-June of 86 Cleveland traded you to Philadelphia for the number one pick in the following day's draft which was Brad Doherty mm-hmm. what were your thoughts on the deal and then the impending move to the 76ers well being that I I was um, born in Trenton New Jersey, which is right across the bridge of Philadelphia, I embraced the move. It was a bigger market. The players on the team were all really great players. They won the championship 83 season. Julius Irvin, who was my hero when I first learned about basketball, it was an honor to play with him and, you know, obviously Charles as well. I remember the night I got the call from Thaxter Trafton, who was the president of the Cavaliers at the time, saying that we just traded you for the 76ers. Being traded for the first time, you have mixed emotions. But I remember calling my agent and my financial advisor at the time, and my agent told me they want you down there for a press conference. So I went down there, and it was almost like a dream come true playing for the Sixers. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't the best for my career because I didn't do well at that time, but it was just an honor just to play for the Sixers. Yeah, well, you mentioned Julius Irving there. Um, This was an interesting season as well for Philadelphia in that it was Dr. J's farewell tour. Mm -hmm. You joined the team that had your idol on the squad and then also it was his final season and uh, pretty much everywhere he went, he was being gifted all kinds of things along the way. Um, The team went 45 and 37 and then you were ousted by the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round of the 87 playoffs. I think it was a five-game series. Mm Mm-hmm. You still averaged just under 14 points and then over six boards and two blocks a game. So they're still solid numbers for sure. What about uh, playing alongside Barkley, who I think was in his third season at this stage and obviously Julius Irving rounding out his career? Well, I was um, happy for the challenge of playing with a a winning team. Uh, Even though we had some success in Cleveland, we didn't sustain it because my last year in Cleveland, we actually didn't make the playoffs. It was a great opportunity to play with some really great players. Um, obviously, Maurice Cheeks, Andrew Tony, Julius Irving, Charles Barkley, to name a few. Unfortunately, you know, things happen sometimes. It's not really a good fit. Um, Charles' style didn't really mesh up to mine. He was more domineering of the ball. Uh, I think that if I would have actually been more of an outside threat, I think it would have been a better experience. But because I was a low-post player, 
wasn't used to slashing. I didn't fit in as well as I should have, and I didn't adjust as well as I should have. It made sense why that experiment, if you will, did not work out. Hmm. I appreciate you being open and honest about that. Um, now, in mid-January of 1988, the Sixers traded you, along with uh, Tim McCormick, to New Jersey for Ben Coleman and Mike Jeminski. So you returned back to your home state, uh, even though it wasn't too far removed from Pennsylvania. When did you first learn of that trade? How did it feel to now be back home playing in your home state? We played the New York Knicks, I think it was a back-to-back home-and-home. The night before, we played at our home. Then we went to New York. We played at their home. So we had just finished a back-to-back. Um, we had lost to the Knicks, and Matty Gukas called me into the shower area because it was away from the team, and he said, it's done. And so I'm saying, yeah, okay, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> just like that, that's how he said it. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Different people have different styles of how they break the news. I recall Maurice Cheeks telling me one time that, when he was traded, he found out from a reporter mm. who was kind of stationed out outside his house. So at least I've heard it from the coach as opposed to a reporter. Well, that's true. And I'll take a very quick side tangent here. Um, I've had Kelly Chapuka on the show uh, as a guest in the past, and he heard about his trade from Detroit to Utah. I think it was second or third hand when he was at a golf tournament in the off season. So there's all kinds of strange ways that people hear about being traded, but uh, at least you did hear it straight from the coach. Yes, I did. Going to play for New Jersey um, in your first full season with the Nets, it was a really good season for yourself. You played all 82 games. The Nets struggled a 26-56 and 56 record, and you were under the guidance of um, the legendary Willis Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you averaged 16 points and 6.4 boards and one and a half blocks a game. You were only 27 years old, and at that stage, you'd have to say the future looked really bright. What do you remember most about that season with the Nets and then playing regularly in front of family and friends? I remember that season, it was an adjustment um, because every time you go from a team to another team, you have to learn the different culture of that team, different plays. uh, And so there's an adjustment period. Uh, You have to learn the players, how they play, how you can mesh with them. So it's always a challenge. Even in today's game, it's always a a learning curve of adjusting to your new team and the culture. It was great going home. My parents, uh, I figured they would be able to see me play every game, uh, which they did for a while. And then they kind of slowly started to (laughs) wane off a little bit. It was good for my career because things weren't working out in Philadelphia, unfortunately. From a career standpoint, it was good. The bad thing, the Nets were not a great franchise at the time. They were losing more than they were winning. I was hoping that maybe this would be an opportunity for me to help turn a franchise around. In January of 91, there was a three-team trade that sent Drazen Petrovic from Portland to New Jersey. And as most listeners would know, Drazen tragically passed away in June of 93. Um, what, what can you sort of tell us about Drazen, the person? He was a great guy, great teammate. And I don't think I've ever seen a more pure shooter. Mm. I liken him to, obviously, Steph Curry is um, in a world of his own. But he could fill it up just like Steph Curry. He shot threes. You know, he could shoot from anywhere. Twos, threes didn't matter. And it was just a pure shot and just a great teammate. I can't say enough good things about the man. Really pleased to hear that. Uh, I love asking about uh, the influence of Drazen. Only a week or so after Drazen joined the team, actually, January 22 of 1991, that would be your final NBA game. 
You finished in fine form, though. You scored 12 points and hit a game-winning shot with just under five seconds remaining yes. at Charlotte to uh, give your Nets a 92-90 to victory. Do you remember the game-winning shot? And then, conversely, did you actually know that that could have been your last time on an NBA court? No, actually, I did not. I was having knee problems at the time, and I was out for a while, then I came back. It was almost like they wanted to see how my knee would hold up. And we went into Charlotte. I felt pretty good. Um, my knees were sore at times, but you know it wasn't that bad. I remember the game. I remember playing a little bit. I knew that they were going back and forth towards the end. I ended up getting the ball on the low block. I think uh, Johnny Newman was on me. He was covering me. Yeah. And I made a shot over him, which actually won the game for us. So it was um, kind of a great game. But I still thought I was going to play more. Uh, unfortunately, my knee had other plans. Mm. So I ended up having another a surgery and then more surgeries because my the articular surface of my knee, if I'm saying it correctly, was worn away. So there was literally holes in that in the surface. And it wasn't on one knee, it was on both knees. So I tried uh, different techniques to try to get back, tried the microfracture surgery, which most guys are doing now when they have the same condition. The one thing about me that I did not do that guys are doing now, I tried to come back in six weeks where guys are taking a full year off. Oh, wow. And I think maybe if I would have took a full year off, I might have been able to come back and play some. Probably not to the level I played at before, but I might have been able to extend my career. When did you first start to, to notice that you were having trouble with your knees? Yeah, I think it was an 89-90 season. I was playing Philadelphia, oddly enough. And the next day, we had a day off. I was sitting in my living room and I was just in pain. My knees were just in such pain. I remember the next day I went in and talked to Harry Weltman, who was the general manager at the time, because Harry was a friend as well, because he was a general manager who drafted me. I talked to him and he said, well, we need to kind of figure this thing out. We need to talk to somebody. We want to talk to somebody who's really good, who really knows knees. So I went to go see Jeff Minkoff and we did an exploratory arthroscopy. And that's when he told me that, you know, it looks pretty bad. Mm. This is where it gets to the part where I didn't actually know much about what happened after your final game with the Nets. Three days before the 1993 NBA season commenced, the Nets traded Mookie Blaylock to Atlanta for Romeo Robinson, which I was aware of the deal that got Mookie to the Hawks, but I didn't realize that you were actually part of that deal as well. Yes. You remained with the Hawks through the 1994 season before they then traded you to Milwaukee for Ken Norman. <laughs> I had no idea this sort of stuff happened. It's only because of basketballreference.com that I've since learned this in the last few days. Uh, I know we've talked about the leg-related and knee-related injuries. What was it sort of like just attempting to fight your way back into having an on-court career like, and trying to maintain positivity? Um, how, how was that sort of process for you, Roy? It was tough. And just to kind of give you a little bit more insight on this, those trades. Yeah, please do. I was almost like a throw-in. And I remember going down to Atlanta and meeting with Pete Babcock, the general manager. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to see their doctors. They wanted me to play. I had pretty much had said, well, my career is for the most part over. But, you know, in the back of my mind and in my heart, I knew I still had that desire to play. So I went down and saw their doctors. They did a series of tests. and. They said, you know, your knee is pretty bad. You probably will not be able to play. In fact, I was with Blair Rasmussen, who um, had a back problem at the time. That was pretty much it for his career as well. Now, how I got from Atlanta to Milwaukee, it was just pretty much a paper deal because they traded my contract. 
but because I was still on the contract, it still had me years in the league. So from an NBA standpoint, I actually got 12 years in, even though I only played eight. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. When I introduced you and said that you played for eight seasons in the NBA, you were effectively with a team for, obviously, as you just said, 12 years. So I still get credit. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. That's also why I made the distinction of saying that you played for, for eight NBA seasons. Um, subtle, but it, uh, yeah, is correct. So, yeah, really just sort of fascinating. Again, I do appreciate you uh, letting us in on some of the behind-the-scenes thing about, uh, about what happened. Is there a particular defender that you went up against or, or a few guys who were the absolute best uh, at guarding you when you were playing throughout your career? I remember one time I played against uh, Elijah Wan. I can't remember the year, but I think I only scored two points. He was quick. He was bigger. When I started playing, I was playing center my first year, and then I moved to power forward. I was losing the battle with height and weight to most of the guys because a lot of people don't know I played my career at 210 pounds. At any given night, I was giving up anywhere from 20-plus pounds on any of my opponents. Mm. But I tried not to let them get the best of me because I felt if I couldn't muscle them, which I couldn't do most, most of the time, I tried to use speed. And when speed didn't work, I just tried to jump over them. <laughs> so that was my mindset. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So Elijah One's obviously a very tough matchup for pretty much anybody that played during the 80s uh, and into the 90s as well. Fair to say he was uh, a very dominant player, understatement of the decade probably. Basketball Digest had a regular feature that was called The Game I'll Never Forget. And this is one of the questions I, I love to ask people who I have on the show. Is there a game from your career that stands out above all others? We may have already touched on it. Um, yes, there's one game. We we're playing the San Antonio Spurs in Cleveland. It was my second year. And I was having an okay season at the time. I had a breakout game. I scored 25 points. And the next day, um, they had an article about me in USA Today. Oh, nice. And that's where I said, you know, I think I'm on the right track right now. So that was the game I will always remember. That's fantastic. I love that. That's great to hear that sort of insight. So thank you for... First of all, recalling that particular game and then uh, mentioning about it then. I'm often surprised about the responses I get. Another thing I really do love to ask is, is there any particular significance to any of the jersey numbers that you wore during your career? Uh, I'll go through a brief rundown if I've got this correct. In high school, you wore number 42 and probably 43 for away games. Yes. Um, at Rutgers, you wore number 32. In Cleveland, you wore 32. I think you had to change to 23 in Philadelphia because of the aforementioned Billy Cunningham, whose number was retired. Yes. And then you also rocked 21, 23, and number six whilst you were with the Nets. Mm-hmm. I might have been missing a couple there. Nope. Is there some significance there to those jersey numbers, Roy? Yes. And I'll go through them, each one of them. I'm fascinated by this, so please do. 42 and 43 were my numbers in high school, only because those were the numbers that were left. Everybody had picked all the other numbers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. In college, 32 was because my idol, Julius Irvin, were 32. Ah, of course. Cleveland, same thing, 32. Uh, When I went to Philadelphia, as you said, Billy Cunningham, his number was retired. And so I was talking to Jeff Millman, who was the equipment director at the time, and he said, what are you going to do because you can't wear 32? (laughs) I said, I don't know. He said, well, turn it around. Wear 23. (laughs) So that's when I picked 23. I love it. Yeah, that's great. When I went to New Jersey, Dennis Hobson was wearing 23. So that's when I just picked 21 because that was the next available jersey. Then the following year, he actually wore number two, which gave me number 23 again. And John Williamson, he was uh, he was sick. 
and they wanted to do something special for him. So they wanted to retire his jersey. They said, you can still wear the 23, but we want to retire that number. I said, out of respect for John Williamson, I'll pick another number. So obviously, uh, Julius Urban number when he played Philadelphia was number six. So that's why I picked six. Oh, man. You've knocked that out of the park. That's the best answer I think I've ever heard <laughs> to that particular question. I just have some sort of fascination with uh, jersey numbers and the details behind that are just wonderful. So yeah, thank you for uh, for sharing that one. Just a couple more quick questions before we round it out. And thank you so much for giving me your time today. It's been great chatting with you. Uh, in 1995, you were inducted into the Rutgers Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And in 2006, you were inducted to the Franklin High School Hall of Fame. When you look back on those honors, what does that recognition mean to you? There are so many really good players that play at Rutgers University, and to be one of them that was nominated to the Hall of Fame, it was a huge honor. I remember my family and my, my family friends were there, and Mike Dabney was also inducted that same year, and they had me come up last. The night was going a little bit longer than it probably most people thought it should have, and I wanted to keep it short, and I had a prepared speech. I was going to talk for about a minute, two minutes. I ended up talking maybe about 10 minutes, but I wanted to make sure I thank my family. I wanted to make sure I thank my mom and dad. My mom, actually, she never missed a game when I played at Rutgers University. My father missed a few. He made most of them, but he missed a few. Those memories will always stay in my mind. And I did not know until afterwards that they were honoring me at Franklin High School. I was there for when they retired my jersey, but as far as the ceremony for the Hall of Fame, I didn't know about it. They had a hard time getting in touch with me, and then I found out afterwards that there was an induction ceremony, and so um, I still plan on getting up there. They have a new high school, which is different from where, where I went to school at, so I eventually I want to get back up there and, um, and take a look at the new high school, and I believe my jersey is probably the, still the only jersey that hangs in the rafters there. Fantastic. That's a, that's a great honor and uh, good to hear as well that um, you got the recognition that you truly deserve for those great years you put in there at, uh, at Franklin and also at Rutgers. Now, since you retired from the NBA, amongst other things, you've been working with the NBA Players Association mm-hmm. and your current position, Senior Regional Director. Yes. Do you mind just detailing your role and, and what it involves and perhaps just the importance of the NBA Players Association? Well, the Players Association essentially is a players' union. Um, now, I don't, but the executive uh, branch of the union actually negotiated a contract with the NBA. But what I do is I work in player programs department, and we put on uh, meetings for players to teach them four core components. We have a substance abuse program. We have a mental wellness program. We have a career development program and a financial education program. Because some of the guys that came in to the league, they come in in green, they need help and assistance in these four areas. We hold these meetings, try to educate players to make sure their experience is the best it can be while they're in the NBA and beyond. We also put on a top 100 basketball camp, which is rated probably one of the best camps in the world. We have international players come through our camp the last few years as well. So it's not just the top 100 in the United States and Canada, but it's the top 100 all over the world. So we're pretty proud of that. This will be the 25th year that we put on this camp. And we started out at 75 back in Princeton University many, many years ago. We went from Princeton University to American University to Virginia Commonwealth. And now we're at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. And it's just a huge honor to 
see some of the kids that come through. Uh, in our first year, uh, I remember Kobe Bryant, his class was one of the first classes. And you could tell way back then that Kobe Bryant was going to be a beast. <laughs> he was that strong of a player back then. And I mean, that was just amazing, the talent that comes through our camp. Probably about 25% of the NBA players have come through our camp. Yeah, right. So it's incredibly important for those that take part. Uh, a lot of them go on to future success uh, at the highest level. Yes. What did you make of the recent All-Star weekend and uh, being back with uh, former legends of the game as part of the uh, NBA Players Association and the Retired Players Association? It's always a pleasure seeing the guys. You know, it seems like there's never enough chances for us to uh, get together and have this fraternity of, of meeting together. And this is when everybody comes out, seems like. And so it's a great experience, a great bonding. But it's never long enough. It's usually um, on a Sunday when we have the Legends Brunch. And that's where we see all the guys. It's about three hours. And then you're gone until the next year. <laughs> so it's a little tough in that regard. But it's always good to see the guys. If I was even anywhere in the continental USA, I'd love to attend one of those brunches just to see the collection of uh, amazing players and guys from over the years. It'd be fantastic. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that you actually like to make mention of from your time on the court during your playing career at all, Roy? Um, you know, the only thing that I can honestly say, even though my career was cut short because of injuries, it was probably the best time I've ever had doing anything. I love playing basketball. I love going to practice. That's how much I love basketball. And initially, when I first started out playing in high school, I didn't have that love, but I grew to love the game. Once I developed that love affair with the game of basketball, it was just full on. Practice, shoot arounds, it didn't matter. Being on that court was, as we call it now, going to church. That was your sanctuary. Doesn't matter if you had a problem or any kind of issue, when you were between those lines, nothing mattered. It was all about doing what you love to do. I can tell even all those years on how much uh, passion and love you have for it, just uh, hearing you speak about it now. Well, thank you so much for opening up about your career, Roy. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show and you talk about your life in basketball. All the best and I hope to have you back on at a future date and we can maybe chat about some more old school hoops. Oh, that's been great. I have truly enjoyed it. And um, anytime you want to have me back on, I'd be more than happy to be back on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you're most welcome. I want to just thank you for, for taking time to uh, speak to some guy in Australia. Not a problem at all. But also, as you mentioned, if you ever get an opportunity to come stateside and you want to go to the Legends Brunch, please look me up. Oh, fantastic. I'd love to. My wife and I went to the, the States and got back in mid-January. We finished up in LA, but timing didn't work that we were there a few months later. But certainly, I'd uh, really appreciate that. All right. Thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity. This has been a great walk down memory lane. All right, thank you, Roy. All right, take care. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail. Simply visit inallairness.com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done. Time to share another great review from a fan of the show. Thanks this time to Wizard Whitebeard. Very confident that's not your real name. On the USA iTunes store, it's titled Awesome and In-Depth, and it reads, There is no other basketball podcast like this. Adam has vast knowledge of the game, particularly the 90s NBA, which, for many of us, is the golden era of pro basketball. 
He also books many interesting guests from varied backgrounds in the sport who all lend even more interesting insights into many aspects of the game, the players and such. I highly recommend this podcast to any basketball slash sports nerd out there. (laughs) Thank you very much, Wizard Whitebeard. Up until only a few years ago, the Washington Wizards incorporated the white beard of their then emblem into the W for Wizards, but that's since been replaced. Worldwide, the show currently has 72 reviews, 69 on iTunes, and 3 on Stitcher. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Word-of-mouth recommendations are certainly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Apple Podcasts, visit inallairness.com slash iTunes. Android, visit inallairness.com slash Android. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com slash Stitcher. You can now subscribe to the show on Spotify, plus Pocket Casts, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, other podcatchers, and of course, via the podcast's app on your iOS device of choice. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.